one of the many things in life that I shall never be able to do anything about is that Catherine Kaisleib is four days older than I am, and she's always going to be. <laughs> so uh, I hope that uh, my transparent respect for our speaker this evening uh, manifests the fact of my simple inferiority. But let me also say parenthetically that Kathy Lieb is probably the smartest person I've ever met. You see what four days does. She is speaking this evening on various matters having to do with automation and rare books, a subject in which she is a veteran and an expert, and it's a great pleasure to have her here tonight. Catherine Lieb. The title of this is supposed to be Automation and Rare Books, The Dark Side of the Moon, but let me begin by pointing out that this is a joke. It was done with sole purpose <laughs> of teasing and irritating Steve Davis as an answer to his title and a linkage within uh, Terry's program this summer. It probably should be called something like Bibliographical overcontrol, boiling the baby in the bathwater, or something similar like that. But I'll save that sort of observation to the end and begin by talking about what Terry asked me to talk about. Uh, I'll begin with who am I and why am I here at this point in the rare books proceedings. I think it is because there is a microcomputer course and the computerization of ABPC originally, American Book Prices Current, was in some ways very like what people do in libraries and elsewhere uh, when they are beginning to use computers and finding out how to catalog structure databases and so on. There are some similarities. There are also some great differences. When I began seven years ago, I was what was then known as an English literature type. Schooled in the humanities, knowing various things about libraries and literature and so on, and now here I am working with mainframes, micros, packet switching networks, tree and ISAM databases, a reader of mini microsystems, communications week, MIS week, library systems networks, and other such publications, debugging programs, consulting to small libraries and projects, and producing computer-generated bibliographies for other publishers, as well as producing ABPC by computer and managing two online databases, Utopia and BamBam, one for the prices of old books, and the other for the reporting of stolen books and manuscripts. What happened between there and here? Well, there's a term the anthropologists use called depaysation. When you start off using computers, there is that wonderful, scary feeling of being, say, in Paris for the first time. Overriding the feeling of strangeness is a great excitement at being able to go explore the Louvre, the theater, the parks, the streets, the cafes, and so on. This happened to me seven years ago or so when I first encountered the computer. Now up to that time, each edition of ABPC was composed of 35,000 3, uh, 35, 3x5 cards. We typed all the cards, we typed all the cross-references, we put them together with paper clips, we filed them, we alphabeted them, we edited all the headings and all the stuff like another copy, another edition with our trusty blue pencils, and off they went to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 
where they were completely retyped as they were set into type, and we read absolutely every character again. And then we would try to convince the printer, for instance, that there really was more than one John Carter, and that Chwo Bookies is correct. If we had to make a change, then we had to physically refit lines and sometimes make up several mechanicals again. We began to think seriously about using a computer after doing an index of 180,000 cards. How large that index was, we didn't really realize until after it had been produced and we decided to dispose of the cards in heavy black plastic garbage bags, which however broke and covered Lexington Avenue with three by five slips of paper, one of which even was found at the 14th Street stop of the subway. Anyway, this was very tedious work. Now, when we began thinking about computerization, one of our group, Peter Hemmingson, had done a little bit of work on a computer for the bank. The, neck, the rest of us had never seen a computer in person. We began to think about precisely what we wanted a computer to do and to learn about computers in general. And I discovered that it was enormous fun. In fact, the more I got into computers, the more enormous fun it became. Nevertheless, when we began to see vendors, we discovered that everybody wanted us to do things their way. And we wanted to do things our way. And it wasn't working out at all. We wanted a number of things that are very, fairly common now, but weren't then. We wanted to make a printed product and a database simultaneously so that we could make our index volumes out of the same records. We wanted automatic tag prompting in our input system, a worksheet that would yell at us if we forgot something. There were a whole raft of things that just didn't fit into anybody's their way, and we began to get discouraged. Then we got a secret weapon, and it serves you right for turning up tonight because I'm going to talk about you. At that point, Steve Davis was a student at the uh, Columbia Library School, and he was our intern that year. And he already knew a great deal more about computers than any of us. And he began to push. He began to push at us to define things, push at us to think about things. And the more we thought, the more enormous fun it became, and the more into these things we got. Then he went off with Terry to work on the ESTC pilot project at NYPL. And from that vantage point, recommended to us Larry Buckland of Inferonics. Now here I'm going to interject a note. I've told some of this story before. But this year, I've decided it's time to emphasize everything that goes wrong. I've been struck by some reading I've been doing in industrial archaeology. Kenneth Hudson points out that the development and perfection of a new process or piece of machinery is not quite the exercise in research and planning that the technical and economic historians left to themselves might lead us to believe. Thus, we don't usually read that several of the early rayon factories blew up. Or that when the first nylon socks were made, the people running the pilot knitting plant didn't know how to fix a developed black dye, so that the wearer trial boys spent hours over several weeks trying to scrub their feet white again. One of the odd things today is that it isn't just history which is cleaning up this sort of process. It's current. Unperfected products like the IBM PC Junior or the Macintosh Packet switching networks like Telenet, 
bibliographic retrieval systems and the like, are all presented as though they are perfect, leaving the poor old user to discover what is really happening. We knew fairly early on that we wanted to go our own way. We learned some things from looking at things like OCLC, about key structures and the like, but it reminded us of democracy in a church choir. It's a super idea, but the resulting sounds may not be musical. We decided that we did not want to use MARC format, although Steve Davis has prophesied our doom ever since. We have survived seven years and we still haven't marked, but also I think we should remember that this was before any of the changes to MARC format to accommodate rare books. Moreover, we were doing something else, producing a book primarily, and we had to watch the amount of money we spent. First, I was sent around by Larry Buckland to see all the various mini-computers, and that was a weird and instructive experience. I learned, for instance, that IBM works like the KGB. You had a three-person demo, the pushy one, the quiet, friendly one, and the technical one. And I was able to fight back as I was eight months pregnant at the time, and they'd never seen one of those before. And I learned in the course of this that people purchase hardware for really stupid reasons. It has a decalator. They told me where I could get Chinese food in New York. These are real comments that I heard while waiting for demonstrations. This was, you'll remember, before the microcomputer revolution. Micros didn't have enough power to do what we wanted to do. Word processors mainly were dedicated machines that didn't do anything else. And all of the demonstrations I saw at that time had to do with inventorying light bulbs or brake parts. And none of the programs being used in John Bidwell's course here were available, at least not for use on a microcomputer. Once we had settled on a DEC PDP 1134, a tried and true mini known for its excellence in running coal mines and other such things, we set up our database, or rather we set up two very different databases, one for books and one for autographs and manuscripts. The one for books had many fields, and the one for autographs and manuscripts had very few fields but had 140 form codes which could be combined with date codes for sorting. Once we had gotten this work done, and that was enormous fun also, we started practicing using optical character re recognition using typewriters with a special ball for an IBM, which is a hair-raising experience, but an excellent one for memorizing all of the tags in your database if it's new. The machine finally arrived. We knew enough to place the printer and the CPU and desk drives on one floor and have only the terminals on the floor where we were working. In these days of quiet micros, it is hard to imagine the sheer noise of the fans, let alone the printer and we had to wire in special plugs and have individual circuits and all the rest. Because I really didn't want to have a computer room with full air conditioning and all the rest, we did not have very much storage. In fact, we had the first RX-02 floppy disk drives in New York City, and their capacity was less than I have on my micro right now. Because we had equipment on more than one floor, which meant that if something went wrong with the pin connectors at the ends of the cable, we couldn't do the normal deck field service thing, replace the entire cable. One of the new skills that I had to develop was proficiency with a soldering iron, something I had hardly imagined before I began. And deck in New York once called me up to ask where to get double density floppy disks because they were so new that no one had told deck in New York 
that you formatted regular disks to double density by running a program called Format. At that time, primitive word processors for many computers cost thousands of dollars, and we didn't have one at the beginning, nor did we have what was then called a screen editor. We had our tag prompting at all, but we couldn't edit records at the terminal once we had left a field. I had to stand in the basement, which was where the console terminal comb printer was, and use a grindy old machine editor to go through files and edit them. Or I could edit on the mainframe in Boston, but I used a little TI terminal for that because DEX communication programs simply didn't work well enough unless you had a dedicated line. In this sort of setting, and still in the dépaysement stage, I very quickly plunged into learning something about programming languages, database theories, and all sorts of other skills that I hardly use these days. After all, I was having enormous fun. The first book we did turned out very well for a first book, but we had a missing bullet, which is, you know, in each sign, one of those little things, like an A with a circle around it. What do you call those, really? I don't know. Bullets? All right. In the cross-reference for the butterfly's ball and the grasshopper's feast. It was missing. See Roscoe, William. The code for the typesetting and automatic page makeup program had not taken the possibility of such an error into account. And thus was created a problem which threw off all of the cross-references from that point on and sent me into orbit when I saw the camera-ready copy. We found the bug very quickly, and several people stayed up all night to do the entire 1,058-page book over again so that I could still make my schedule. But there was enough magic in being able to do this to save my sense of enormous fun for a while. The next step was setting up an online database. We began by thinking only in terms of ourselves. Many books which are sold at auction are sold in many copies. The bird books of Francis Orpen Morris, for example, seem to be books that nobody wishes to keep, as are the writings on furniture by Sosinski and Gribble. We sometimes have as many as 94 Francis Orpen Morrises in a year. Now, if we could pull records out of a database, modify them while keeping the originals, and then use the modified records, we could save a good deal of time and trouble. And we could use other records for reference on sticky books when we didn't want to do all of the research again and again. As we developed our ideas, wouldn't it be nice to pull up all of Arthur Rackham at once? Let's find a way to get it data through the Illustrator. We began to see that other people might want to use our database, especially since appraisers weren't willing to go to small institutions for little work, and that an online database might be the thing to have. Inferonics and our little company did their work well. What began with our project later emerged in one form as the database structure for the Boston Public Library, and our developing input system bloomed into full mark structure for the American Antiquarian Society for the North American Imprints Inventory. And I well remember er early versions of that before it was delivered to American Antiquarian. Because of the amount of validation, checking to see if fields were properly filled, that it had to do for mark, it ran at a speed, originally, which someone described as being equivalent to driving a bulldozer to Detroit. But that was soon improved. 
Now, we didn't want to mount an online database with dialogue or any of those guys because we wanted control of the data and of the structure. And we didn't want to be kept from further experimentation by being locked into a big system. But if you're going to reinvent the wheel, you have to learn about packet switching systems, international phone regulations, speeds and the like, and all sorts of potential incompatibilities. I spent a great deal of time learning the intricacies of Telenet in America and in Britain, where the engineers are wonderful, but the telephones and the telecommunications offices don't work. But in the long run, it wasn't satisfactory for us. Why? Telenet grew too fast, and thus they never implemented many of their planned features. And peculiar things from time to time went wrong with Telenet. There was one morning when the entire East Coast was out. We kept dialing and dialing and dialing and nothing happened. So we finally called beautiful downtown McLean, Virginia to ask what had happened. And we got a fellow on the phone who said that, oh, it was his fault. And oh, I said, why was it your fault? Well, he said, this morning I was driving to work and I hit a deer. I said, oh, I'm so sorry. He said it was terrible, but a truck driver came along and shot it. Oh, I said, well, then you must have been very upset. No, he said, that didn't upset me, but my wife wouldn't let me take it in the car because she said it would bleed on the back seat. Now, that was the reason that the entire East Coast was out. Now, we discovered with Telenet that certain kinds of work simply could not be done accurately over phone lines unless they were done at night. Interestingly, we have done less and less over telephone lines through the years. I have found that the cheapest and most efficient and accurate way to send data is to mail floppy disks to Boston. This past year, we left Telenet behind us. The chief reason was the preteen hacker. I'm not certain that along with rules for drinking and driving, there shouldn't be a minimum age for wielding a computer over telephone lines. I can hardly wait to see what happens when all the banks go online and we'll have loads of rich nine-year-olds all over the country. Anyway, it is not difficult to break into other people's systems through a packet switching network. I can do it myself. And we were trashed several times for no particular reason. At the moment, one has to reach our databases by calling a number in Boston. But we're trying out satellite transmission lines this coming month, and we'll see how well that works. We used to do a fair amount of demonstrating of our databases when they were very new, and this was always fraught with terror. For we always assumed that everybody else's worked perfectly all the time, and you never quite knew what would happen. For instance, the first time we demonstrated for the antiquarian booksellers, who responded at that time with profound suspicion to anything computerized, was at a meeting held in a New York nightclub. Now we went to check the place out two days before to discover that this place was fancy enough that it had handheld phones, which really would not work with one of these little computer terminals. So we had to arrange with New York Telephone to install a telephone in a nightclub for a night, which is one of the more interesting things we ever had to do. Our very best awful moment was right at the beginning of Bam Bam, the database for missing books and manuscripts. We had the police, the FBI, customs, 
and Herbert Mitgang of the New York Times, all assembled and ready for a crackerjack story. And at that moment, the wonderful folks from Digital Equipment Field Service waltzed into the public Boston Public Library where the mainframe was located and decided to do preventive maintenance on the machine. This was totally unannounced, of course. We were left with a resounding public nothing, but we learned for the first time about the problems with the New York City police computer, major, the FBI computers, and the customs computers. Now, along with all this, we learned a fair amount about costs. My one-time project for adding a printer key to the Utopia database got scrapped because it was simply too expensive to implement, but it was enormous fun to work out. And we are only just about to change our database structure to allow for string searching as well as key searching because we had to figure out a way to do this cheaply with a database of some 250,000 records. Costs have also meant that we have not done the retrospective cataloging we planned to do when we first began. We were going to take ABPC back to 1900. So far, there simply hasn't been the time or the money to do so. And I understand that we are not alone in having this problem. Similarly, knowing what I do now, I would love to redo all of our programs in our database just about completely. Because we understood that ABPC had a very conservative clientele, which wanted to see the book look just like it had always looked, we designed our programs to achieve that end to a much greater extent than I would do today. As for the database and the system as a whole, well, once a system has grown to even a quarter of a million records, it's difficult to go back and change the whole thing. But we have consistently changed what we could to make things better, and our input program today looks quite different from the original one. Now, occasionally, we get too clever for our own good. This past year, we did a new version of our input program, which is really a beauty. It's about the eighth version. It ran four times as fast as its predecessor, predecessor, and it had some nifty new features. However, it blew up every file I attempted to edit with it, a not-so-nifty new feature. So we all got hysterical and tried things and scrutinized the code to discover that a space between records generated by another program had not been accounted for in this version, and that was the problem. All this took less than 24 hours, but it sure does shorten your life. New hardware and old programs can also create problems, too. Now, recently, while I was doing a chapter for a book that Dan and I are working on, I took out an old word processor, which I used to use with a letter quality printer, a Diablo 1600, on another machine. And I decided to use it to uh, type up this chapter. And I forgot that what I had where I was working at the time was a little TI-850 dot matrix specialty printer. And the first time I used this, it being old, every other line in this chapter printed backwards. <laughs> So we had to write a little something called by-off, meaning bi-directional off, which didn't happen to be in this, although it is in some other programs, in order to make something which was readable. But, I mean, there it is. It is a wonderful draft chapter, which is fairly backwards.
So this is something that one always has to watch when dealing with old hardware, I mean new hardware, and old programs. Because our work has to do with libraries and bibliography, and because we have had more experience than most people with the entire range of processes involved in dealing with rare books and databases, we've developed some fairly strong opinions. At least I have, but I'd rather hide behind the we. About happenings in the library world with reference to computers, networking, and bibliographic control. We have benefited greatly from library systems in such matters as structuring key searches, name authority techniques, and even override codes for sorting so that you can place a record where you want it if your sort key isn't long enough. That one we got from the ESTC project. But we have learned to worry about libraries for some of the same reason. Bam Bam, for instance, provided a clue to something amiss in many libraries. Again and again, we would receive standard LC cards with no local notations of any kind on them, and these were supposed to be records of individual copies of books which had been taken. Even when libraries belonged to OCLC or even Arlen, we found that very often the physical unique copy had simply disappeared in the cataloging, which means that there is no way to get the book back. Sometimes we found as we were looking around at libraries that we couldn't even recommend that people computerize because there are libraries which, like Tom Tansel, have no need to computerize and others where the felt reluctance to put in a computer really might destroy rather than enhance the library. Sometimes we wonder about the practicalities and time involved in certain kinds of improvements to cataloging. My only quarrel, for instance, with the standard way in which we are to list bibliographies and records, is that I think some attention should be paid not only to common practice, but to the number of keystrokes involved. I am willing to type, say, Nissen Vogel, or Nissen Botanica, or Nissen Fish, rather than just Nissen, if a record is ambiguous, but not more. And I'm really not sure that clarity demands it. Sometimes we seem to be way out of step for shouting about, say, copy-specific information, and then back in step again. And we at ABPC gradually saw the economics we had to contend with in the 1970s catching up with the big utilities. Because we write as well as publish books, we worried about some of the innovations, like optical and laser disks, because the library community, in part at least, seemed content to say, well, Looks like copyright has had its day and simply dismissed the whole matter of the author's work in the hope of getting some compensation for it. Now that people like OCLC and Carrollton are trying to copyright library records for other purposes, this attitude seems to be modifying somewhat. And I'm glad about that, whatever the cause. I worry about costs and their possible effect on the scholarly community as a whole. Both costs as an excuse to hack new systems and I suspect the Link Systems Project of some of that, while pretending that you are doing something else, and costs creating a dangerous form of elitism. One experience of my own has some point here. The Getty, which you know, is waiting about in this combined computer optical disk project of iconography for museums and the like, once called up and asked for our proprietary software, free, with the implication that they were the Getty. They were helping mankind. And of course, we should give it to them. In talking with these Martians, 
I began to think of the problems that the university used to have with seed money for institutes. Universities like Columbia developed grave financial problems in the late 1960s and early 1970s because the government would come waltzing in with seed money for an institute to study something or other and leave the university to come up with the financing for later years. I wonder whether Getty will finance their program as an ongoing effort or whether museums and some libraries are about to run into the same old spiral again. Money for setup, but no money for maintaining the system. Costs are beginning to crop up in strange ways everywhere. Here are a few telling little examples from the May 1984 issue of CNRL. William Y. Arms on the U.S. Census. Most recent censuses have released raw data on magnetic tape. This data is invaluable for studies in several social sciences, but extracting information from hundreds of reels of tape is so tedious that for the most recent census, each state has set up a dissemination bureau and several universities have provided their own services. The cost of such service is so great that even universities the size of Harvard and MIT have found it cheaper to work together. See the costs being passed along? How many of us can afford it and how, for how long? Same issue of CNRL, Patricia Batten. Both RLG and OCLC are planning technical architectures which will permit the orderly and effective decentralization, member centralization, of many currently centralized information services. And we are beginning to see the first efforts of the for-profit sector to market bibliographic information directly to the end user a phenomenon which transfers costs normally borne by the institution to the individual scholar, for whom some libraries were created at one point, on a per-use cost basis. See the costs pass along? But to whom? Can you imagine Karl Marx working in the British Museum under those conditions? There would have been at least one more chapter or a whole lot more for Engels to bear. Also, phone costs are rising. This is another problem. Sam Streit and I have thought about when telephonic communications just gets out of hand, we are going to go into the business of creating architecturally proper dishes for, the type, for, for libraries when you all have microwave transmission and so that they can blend in and not just be these plain things. Or they can be somehow a symbol of the library beneath it. This it might be a fascinating undertaking. Now here's my favorite from CNRL in this issue. Pauline Atherton Cochran saying, the Link Systems Project will provide access to Arlen, WLN and LC, and now OCLC, and will allow users to switch between the databases and to search all the authority files. Such cooperation may minimize the impact of cataloging cutbacks at LC. Now, I would love to know what the total cost of the Link System project will be and what its real utility will be as opposed to alternative uses for the money. Admittedly, it would be enormous fun to work out all those layers of protocols. And if a system is good, mustn't a super system be better? Much has been done, it seems to me, in the spirit of dépaysement or in the spirit of hackerism. Only now are people complaining that, say, the electronic mail system at the British Library doesn't work as well as the messengers of, of old. Or they find that if they have to share the computer by their desk, they don't use it very much. 
In the library press, we read about those who would simply throw in the towel with reference to books and turn libraries into computer instruction centers. Is Oscar Hanlon alone in pointing out that information is not the same as research and that publication without some sort of peer review could result in such a glut of undifferentiated information that the result would be static? The census example sounds just a little bit like what he's talking about. On the other hand, there is a growing elitism. Let OCLC be for the masses. Some have even suggested throwing it away. And just listen to Ireland members complain when somebody new comes in and all at once there are too many records in a given area. I was down at Lincoln Center when Brigham Young went on and all of a sudden there was all this Wagner. And you should have heard people. By God, we shouldn't have let them in. And before that, all the stuff there pretty much in that area was theirs. And they, they, were, they were happier about that. Now, it is becoming apparent that perhaps one system isn't enough. I was fascinated when Davis was here uh, the other week because one of the things that he very quickly suggested and passed over, which really shouldn't be passed over, and I hope it's coming, is that perhaps if all this doesn't quite work, even after all this wonderful work to bend mark to rare book uses within the existing systems, why not make rare books a subset somewhere else? Why not have a rare book network? And in time, using people's retrospective tapes and doing one thing with them, it might be some sort of answer. In some circles, however, some of the same circles, microcomputers are becoming anathema because I think they represent something that cannot be controlled and standardized. I wish that I had been amazed last week when after a talk which looked a bit askance at microcomputers in libraries, someone came up to the speaker and in the voice of Mrs. Grundy said portentously, I know of two libraries where they're using microcomputers right now. Oh, I hope so. And I hope there are more. And I cheer for the folks like those at American Antiquarian who have their Ireland tapes and their home use tapes and they aren't exactly alike. I have always wished that there were a short set of standards and a universal translator, but it's a little late for that. Systems have their uses, and these must not be forgotten, but they can reach a point where all they can do is grow, not change, not improve. And there is an arrogance among the systems makers sometimes, which is typical of the computer hacker, which assumes that any deviation from the system or problem with the system cannot be caused by the nature of the system itself. The June issue of American Libraries contains an article on the Link Systems Project which ends with an amazing statement. Here it is. If the same standards are followed throughout the information community, the only remaining barriers to exchange will be human produced because the machines will be cooperating with each other. Well, that for you, humans. And have rare book catalogers really been able to put all they know about the books they catalog into these systems? In his wonderful 1976 book, Computer Power and Human Reason, From Judgment to Calculation, Professor Judge, uh, Joseph Weizenbaum of MIT recounts a story told by his colleague Philip Morrison 
about the computer-generated, that's always been hard for me to say, map on Morrison's wall. It was the first map to show the plates making up the crust of the Earth, with the dotted outlines being made by earthquake epicenters. Now, the seismologist who created this map explained that since their own recordings of earthquakes were in one standard format, which could easily be told to the machine so as to locate the dots on the map, they could only use their own data, which their own worldwide network of detectors recorded from 1961 to 1967 when the map was made. By dropping out all reference to the vast and diverse literature from 1840 to 1961, they gained, they said, the advantage of not having to read and interpret all those obscure German uh, journals. Moreover, since the number of earthquakes recorded in the 1961 to 1967 period was as many as all the earthquakes recorded up to that time, they only lost a factor of two, which is not much statistically. Now this map was both a wonderful accomplishment and a cavalier dismissal of the entire history of a science. Nobody would say that it all began in 1961, not even if our modern compatible data began then. The past was an indispensable prologue. It saw the formation of concepts, the development of techniques, the introduction of instruments, the idea of systematic recording, and so on. All this showed the way, without which the map could not have been produced. Weizenbaum then comments that the computer has thus begun to be an instrument for the destruction of history. For when a society legitimates only those data that are in one standard format and that can easily be told to the machine, then history, memory itself, is annihilated. Well, now, Weizenbaum overstates this somewhat, but it does remind me of, have you ever played Trivial Pursuit and found an error as you were playing? What do you do about it? Are they going to send a correct card out to everyone who bought it? At what point does it become true? We're back to the old, the old thing again. Now, all of this is more applicable to things like Nexus or the New York Times databank than to rare book cataloging. But what are the important things that we know about rare books that do not fit into these systems as they exist now? Often we know what the limitations of the formats and the systems are in terms of our knowledge. But will the next generation? What complexities are being lost? The computer, for good or bad, soothes today's widespread feelings of emptiness, of disconnection, of the unreality of self, and does so without making emotional demands. It also creates a psychological distance from its object, be that object the Vietnam War or a rare book. And at its worst, the great victory that science has given us over ignorance can be seen also as an Orwellian triumph of an even higher ignorance. What we have gained is a new conformity which permits us to say anything that can be said in the functional languages of instrumental reason, but forbids us to allude to what Ionesco called the living truth. And that is why, I suppose, computers, toilers in the computer bibliographical vineyards, as diverse as Davis and myself, aren't having quite as much enormous fun as we used to, and have begun to worry about how it will all work out although I should emphasize that our possible solutions are not even remotely similar. Some of what looked just fine once turns out to be what Weizenbaum has called the quick technological fix, used to paper over fundamental problems to create the illusion that they are being attacked. 
what are libraries and rare books all about? What are the priorities of needs? How do you use computers as tools rather than being bound and gagged by systems that may not serve your needs? Do you have to use microcomputers to conduct guerrilla warfare in order to save the living truth? At the same time, do you have to work actively to bend the techies to your will? If you do not know precisely what you need and what you want, you may end up in a situation analogous to that at a New York auction house. Its system, I discovered last week, not what you think, uh, its system, I discovered last week, will show upper and lower case characters at a terminal. But everything prints in uppercase only, and thus they cannot produce computer-generated catalogs, and <laughs> they don't know how to fix it yet. But then they never defined that clearly as a name. Somewhere out there, there is money for conservation, for reading shelves, for marking, for time to be spent looking at books, for collection development, for better computer networks, for rare books, for all the things that will help scholars and others in the continued saying of sooth. But don't let the baby get boiled in the bathwater, or you'll be out of a job, and we'll be out of civilization. Kathy, thank you very much. That was splendid, as always. We have a present for you. Boy, I'll tell you, Queen Mary had Calais written on her heart. I had aprons. We finally got Not them. bad, not bad. Tomorrow night, the celebrated and rich antiquarian bookseller <laughs> Lawrence Witten, rich because he just sold his collection of musical instruments at a figure reputed to be more than two million dollars to the University of South Dakota <sighs> speaking on I'm not making this up uh, Speaking on computerization, uh, especially microcomputerization, in his antiquarian book business, Mr. Whitten has spoken here very entertainingly before, and uh, we look forward to seeing you tomorrow night. We also look forward to seeing you immediately uh, in room 502, where there are refreshments laid on.